Father, we thank you for bringing us together this morning. We pray that you would lead us and guide us as we explore your word written for us. Please make us bold witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus. For we pray it in his name. Amen. I want to tell you about the time I broke up with the Age newspaper. It was 10 years ago. And I just got married, and Renee and I had decided together that we would have $5 a week um, discretionary spending money each. And so I took my $5, and I thought, if I, uh, if I take, I don't know, I think it was $3 out of this, then I can get the Age newspaper delivered to our new house. Um, house. It was more of a sort of a box. Um, we, it would get delivered there um, to these people's backyard, um, once a week. And so I decided to do that. And I did it partially because I wanted people to think that I was intelligent reading what was then a broadsheet newspaper. And partly because I quite like the quality of the journalism. And so I got the newspaper for a little while. And then there was a couple of months where it seemed like every week there was a major piece written to mock and belittle Christianity, or perhaps faith in general. And I, so I waded through these articles, and it just got to the point where I couldn't deal with it anymore. And I, I just thought, I'm going to, this is three bucks of my five bucks, all right? I, I can't waste it on this newspaper anymore. It's getting me too frustrated. And so I killed the subscription and didn't get the paper anymore. I haven't got it since. But what I've learned since is that if you want to be an effective witness in the world for Jesus, you actually have to interact with stuff that you're not going to agree with. And if you want to have any measure of influence on the culture around you, which I believe all Christians are called to do, then you need to be able to interact with opinions that make you angry. And so for the last season of my life, I've had this love-hate relationship with the media, with the culture makers of our day. I've had a love-hate relationship with Twitter and with Facebook and with online journalism, because in order to interact with the culture makers of our time, we must interact with things that will offend us. And it's always been that way. We're going to see this morning that Christians in the early church are going to come up against the opposition, the the culture-making opposition of the day. And I want us to think about how we can respond as Christians in the 21st century, in Caroline Springs, in the midst of a culture that is in some ways, uh, at the very least, different to our Christian culture, that has a worldview that is different to our worldview. How do we exist, and not just exist, but interact with and have an influence on the culture and culture makers around us? So what we're going to do is just read a little bit of this passage that Jimmy has read for us, and then we're going to chat and then read a little more and chat some more, okay? So if you want to take up your Bibles, I encourage you to do that in Acts chapter 4. Everything you need will be on the screen as well. Just so you know, um, the screen is NIV, the new version, 2011, I think. I've got the old one, the 80s one, okay? So some of the wording is slightly different, but I'm sure you can get over that and um, uh, we'll see what God's got for us, all right? So um, in chapter 4, just to set the context, verse 1 to 6 gives us the context. So I won't read that, but you just heard Jimmy read it for you. Basically, John and Peter, as the kind of chief um, mouthpieces of the early, early, early church, 
have been brought before the Sanhedrin. Um, they're made up mainly of the Sadducees, which is a sect of, of Jewish religious leaders. And the Sadducees are the ones who, um, a couple of things mark them out. First of all, they don't believe in the resurrection. Okay, so they're going to have a problem with Peter and John because they're talking about the resurrection. But they also are the ones who are sort of in bed with the Roman authorities. Remember, Rome has come into Israel. It has subjugated it. It is the, 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 they are the overlords um, over Israel. They give them a fair bit of religious freedom and governance freedom, but essentially they're running the show. It's the Pax Romana, right? It's the peace of Rome. You can live peacefully in Israel so long as you don't mess with us. If you mess with us, we'll kill you all. That's the way that Rome conquered most of the world, all right? And in that context, the Sadducees have become good friends with the Romans. And the Sadducees make up most of this ruling council of people called the Sanhedrin. You've got the high priest, who's sort of like the president of Israel. You've got a bunch of Sadducees and then a few lawyers, um, Pharisees, scribes. So the Sadducees are a little bit ticked at Peter and John because they're making a ruckus. And not only are they making a ruckus, which threatens their friends, the Romans, they're talking about the resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead, and they know what that means. That means that, that you know, in, in the eyes of Peter and John, God has instituted this new age, this resurrection age, the age of the Spirit. And all of this, they're preaching, and they're, they're both their words and their works are freaking out the Sadducees. And so they get together with their council, the Sanhedrin, and they arrest Peter and John. And they arrest them uh, and then keep them overnight without any recourse. They don't get their one phone call. They don't get their legal representation. This is first century. The Sanhedrin are ruling the place under the Romans. And so they only meet in the morning. They're morning people, all right? They, they have a few coffees. comes to lunchtime. They're done for the day. This has happened in the afternoon. And so they just have to be in jail for the night. So I send them off into jail overnight comes to the morning and James, uh, sorry, John and Peter are presented before this Sanhedrin, this ruling council who essentially has their lives in the palm of their hands. That's verse 1 to 6. Let's pick it up in verse 7 to 8. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, pause. I'm going to pause it there because we're going to talk a lot of today about how to respond to pressure put on us as Christians by the culture makers of our day. How do you respond to cultural pressures as a Christian? And some of you read what Peter has been saying up until this point in Acts these speeches that he makes, these sermons that he preaches, and you say, that's all right for Peter. He was bold. He had the gift of the gab. He's that kind of person. That's not me. I don't have that kind of courage. I don't have those words. When it comes to threats from the culture around me, I'm more likely just to live and let live and, 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 and withdraw. So if that's how you're feeling this morning, first of all, I know how you feel. I feel that way too. But I want you to notice the most important 
verse that we've read so far, verse 8. What does it say? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Everything that comes next, you read in light of that verse, right? Then Peter, he's about to say something, but first you need to know he has been filled with the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this every week because God keeps putting it in the verses that we preach week to week, right? It's threaded throughout the book of Acts. Luke, as the author and historian, wants you to know everything that happens, happens because these ordinary men were filled with the Holy Spirit. That changes everything. Throughout the book of Acts, you're going to see these ordinary men asking for God to fill them with the Spirit, and then they'll do extraordinary things. And it wasn't because they were extraordinary people. Jimmy belabored this point to begin with, and I'm glad he did. We need to get this right. These are not heroes wearing capes, you know, standing on top of buildings, and we just pale into insignificance next to them. These are ordinary men and women, but they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive what? Power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So everything that Peter says, he says by the power of the Spirit, not by the power of his personality. Let's pick it up. Verse 9 to, seven, 9 to 10. Oh, by the way, I forgot the most important thing. So for you, Christian, who's, who quakes at the thought of being a mouthpiece for God, who quakes at the thought of speaking out in a, in a culture that is, is, I don't want to overstate it, at the very least swimming in a different direction, to the culture that Jesus has set for us as Christians. In the midst of that culture, if you find yourself trembling at the thought of being a witness to the risen Lord Jesus, then do what Peter did. Do what the apostles did. Follow their example. Ask to be filled with the Spirit. That way, when you open your mouth, it will be the Spirit that is speaking for you. You don't have to worry about your lack of ability your lack of personality. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So this is exactly what Jesus said, by the way, in Luke chapter 12, verse 11 to 12, okay? This is what Jesus says to his disciples, and we've just seen it's exactly what happens. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. The same is true for us today. When you're brought before your classroom, when you're brought before your family, before your colleagues, don't worry about what you'll say. Ask to be filled with the Spirit and He will enable you to witness. So important that we ask continually to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we might do extraordinary things in the name of Jesus. So let's continue. We're going to see what he says. 
once he's filled with the Spirit, verse 9 to 10. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. First thing to notice about what he says. First thing to notice about the words that the Spirit gives him as he stands before these authorities and rulers. Notice how Christ-centered his words are. What he says is absolutely Christ-centered. He gets to the point. He gets to the main thing that these men and all men and women need to know. Jesus of Nazareth, who was killed and who was raised again. It's in his name that this man has been healed. Again, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. So for you, as you interact with a culture that is countercultural to Christian culture, you need to know that you have to make the main thing the main thing. It's very easy for Christians to go down all kinds of rabbit trails and at some point look back and realize they left Jesus behind a long time ago. And now they're just talking about conservative politics or liberal politics, or whatever it is. Make the main thing the main thing. Does that mean you always have to only talk about Jesus? No, but Jesus ought to be, this is the image that came to mind for me, Jesus and the gospel ought to be the sun around which all of your interactions orbit. All of your engagements, all of your Facebook posts, all of your arguments and debates, all of your witnessing needs to be orbiting around the Son, which is Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel. If you spin off into space, then you're on no sure footing when it comes to witnessing to the Lord Jesus. Take Peter's example. Christ-centeredness marks all of his interactions with these people who oppose him. So we're going to chat a little bit now about how to interact, how to respond to cultural pressures that you might face as Christians in the world today. And so I've got a little slide here. I've got a couple of ways you can respond to cultural pressures as a Christian. Don't worry about the big words. I tried to make them alliterate and I fudged it a bit, all right? So let me explain these. So there's sectarianism, just back it back a little bit. Yep, sectarianism, syncretism, and swimming against the stream. Okay, so sectarianism. This is one way you can respond to cultural pressure as a Christian. Sectarianism is the propensity to circle the wagons, to withdraw from culture, to become a sect. There are plenty of Christian sects in the world, and their response to this culture around them which opposes them is just to gather together and be their own little thing. You become a sect. You try and develop your own culture and community which agrees with all the things you believe and you withdraw from interacting with the majority culture around you. That's one way to respond. Another way to respond is syncretism. This is just the opposite. You take 
your Christian beliefs and you massage them and smooth them and rewrite them so that the culture isn't opposing you anymore. The culture can can look at what you believe as a Christian and say, yeah, well, we believe that too, as can a Buddhist and a Jew and a Hindu and a Muslim, right? You smooth it out so that there's no, nothing rough about it anymore. Syncretism. And then they're swimming against the stream. So in the case of sectarianism, you get out of the stream of culture altogether. You get out of that stream and up on the bank and secure yourself in a bunker, right? In syncretism, you just jump into the stream and you go with it. Whatever the culture comes up with, you kind of, yeah, we're, we're on board with that too. Swimming against the stream means you're in the stream, you're in the culture, but you are swimming against it on the basis of your beliefs. This requires conviction. This requires an adherence to timeless truth and an ability to communicate in timely ways. In this church, we like to talk about this image of two hands. There is the the closed hand of timeless truth. There are things we believe about God and humanity and the universe that will not ever change. doesn't matter what happens. doesn't matter how the culture changes around us. doesn't matter what celebrity says what. We don't change. We don't budge. And then we have an open hand of timely methods of engagement. That means we're going to change how we engage with the culture around us as the culture changes around us. We have to lest we become irrelevant. I believe this is the path of swimming against the stream that Christians are called to, not sectarianism. Jesus prayed in John 17 for his disciples, Lord, don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. This is being in the world, but not of the world. We're not sectarian. We don't depart. We don't circle the wagons and just pray for Jesus to come back. But likewise, we do not syncretize. We don't jump into the stream and let it take us where it will because everything's relative anyway. No, we stand in the stream. We swim against it when we need to, but we're in it. We're part of it. We're engaging with it. So I want you to notice that this is Peter's approach, and I contend that it was Jesus' approach is interacting with the culture around him, and that it continued throughout the book of Acts, the early church. And you could make an argument that somewhere along the line, we lost it. Began with Jesus, eating with tax collectors and sinners, communicating in ways that they could understand, speaking in parables and story, but standing firm in the truth. Peter continues it here. First of all, he's not a sectarian. He quotes their poets. Verse 11, he says about Jesus, he is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone or the, co- the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118. I think it's verse 22. Speaking to these Jewish leaders, quoting their own poets. That's a pattern you'll see, and we're going to see Paul does it in just a minute. But he quotes their poets. He's not sectarian. He doesn't withdraw from 
their predominant culture-making culture. He steps into it, he quotes their poets, but he doesn't syncretize. He doesn't just say, oh, whose name was it? Well, it was Yahweh's. Everyone believes in Yahweh, right? All right. Right? He doesn't do that. No. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Not sectarian, not syncretistic. He swims against the stream with courage, with boldness, filled by the Holy Spirit, witnessing to the Lord Jesus. The same is true of Paul, and we're going to get to this passage uh, later in Acts 17. It is possibly my favorite passage in the Acts, though that's a hard-fought battle. But I want to read you a passage now from Acts 17. Just notice the pattern, same pattern. Acts 17, this is the Apostle Paul. He stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. Now he's in Athens. He's amongst the pagan people. He's noticing all of their idolatry, all of their statues and idols to foreign gods. It gets him really worked up. He feels like I did reading the age, all right? He feels the tension. The predominant culture and the culture makers are are contrary to if not, um, I can't get this word I'm trying to think of, if not opposed to the, the, the culture of the gospel. And so he stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not very far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So did you notice that? He meets them on their terms. He understands their culture. They're very religious. He's not being sarcastic there. They are very religious people. They are sensitive to things of the Spirit. He quotes their poets, just as Peter has done. In this case, pagan poets. But he at the same time and in the same speech, in the same conversation, lets them know that God will not overlook their ignorance anymore. He commands all men everywhere to repent. 
that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is swimming against the stream. This is what all Christians everywhere are called to do in all ages, at all times, in all cultures. It's going to look one way for the newborn again believer in deepest, darkest Africa. It's going to look another way to the new convert in France, modern-day Europe. It's going to look different again to the believer in Caroline Springs. That Peter and Paul and the early apostles through church history to today, have been called to swim against the stream, to engage with the culture and culture makers of our day. So Peter says this, he stands for truth, he stands for what he believes, he swims against the stream that these culture creators have been making. And their response, verse 13 when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Ordinary men speaking with courage and boldness because they'd spent time with Jesus. Who wants that? Who wants that? That's a pretty good summation of our mission as a church. We exist to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus, the fruit of which should be that. We said this over and again. We believe that the meta theme of the book of Acts is ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. Again, this proves to be the case. Ordinary John, ordinary Peter empowered and filled by the Spirit, witnessing to the Lord Jesus, the result is astonishment. Even from these great lordly men who rule the world, who have memorized the Old Testament, who hold their lives in their hands, even they are astonished. Ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. That's what we want this community of people to be. Your context, your cultural context is going to change from person to person. We live so many different, in so many different cultures and subcultures. This church is made up with such diverse richness. It's a wonderful thing. But this applies to every one of us. If you're a believer in Jesus then our prayer is that you would be filled with the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. So they're stunned, they're astonished, they're taken aback, they can see the fingerprints of Jesus are all over these guys. Their response, verse 16 to 20, what are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name, the name of Jesus. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, again, filled with the Spirit, judge for yourselves whether it is right 
in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. There's echoes of Daniel. Life in jeopardy for worshipping the one true God. But he cannot help but pray. These men cannot help but speak about what they have seen and what they have heard. We walked with Jesus for three years. We heard him speak. We saw him perform miracles. We saw him killed and buried and raised again. We saw him ascend to heaven. He has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are filled with his spirit. We cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. So you're the judges, you're the culture makers, you have our lives in your hands, judge for yourselves what's right for us to do. Great boldness. Now I want to say to us this morning, every one of us who claims the name of Christ, every one of us who wants to be an agent of reconciliation in the world, reconciling God to man. Every one of us who wants to stand in the stream of the culture and have a voice of influence, we need to ourselves own that truth. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Next week, we're going to baptise five young people and you're going to hear from them their own witness to what they've seen and what they've heard. And our prayer for them is going to be that they cannot help but keep speaking. Most of them are younger than us. And so most of them are going to live longer in this world than we are. And I'm pretty optimistic, actually, about the culture we live in. I'm pretty optimistic about the power of the gospel to change the culture around us. But no doubt they're going to come up against wave after wave of counter-Christian culture. And so you ought to be praying from now until that day next Sunday and beyond that they will be able to stand and witness to the Lord Jesus. That they will be able to say with Peter and John, we cannot help but speak and write and record the things that we have seen and we have heard. How much, how desperately do we need a whole generation of Christians who are so sure about what they believe that they can can produce and cultivate a Christ-centered culture? That's what we need. We've had that in the past. The great artists of history were Christians who painted and wrote and sang about the glory of the risen Lord Jesus and the good news of the gospel. And it had an effect in the world. The great artists, the great masters, the great culture makers of modern history were Christians And now suddenly we find ourselves painted into the corner and it's because some of us have become sectarian and some of us have become syncretistic and what we need is a generation of people who will swim against the stream and make 
culture bend its knee to the, to the Lord Jesus? Where are the poets? Where are the songwriters? Where are the artists? Where are the book writers? They might be in this church and they might feel that they've had their wick snuffed out by the prevailing Christian culture, which is wet and tired. I think Douglas Wilson captures the heart of what I'm trying to say. Let me read what he says. We need Christians with a thoroughgoing biblical worldview, writing good books, making good movies, and recording good music. Notice a couple of things there. Thoroughgoing biblical worldview. That means it doesn't bend with the culture. It doesn't, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, get tossed around in the waves of the culture. It's thoroughgoing. It's got stones. Thoroughgoing biblical worldview. That is, the way they see the whole world, including all of their interactions with the culture around them, is biblical shaped by what God has revealed in the Scriptures. We need Christians with a thoroughgoing biblical worldview writing good books. That's the other thing to notice. Good. Not crap. Good books. Making good movies and recording good music. We must remember always that religion shapes culture and culture trumps politics. Little pun there, not intended. Legislative battles are important. Need to hear this. Those of you who are prone just want to march on Spring Street at every opportunity. Legislative battles are important in the meantime, but mostly as a defensive measure. The offense won't happen until we make the connection between our faith and culture. The kind of culture that forms apart from laws. We don't just try and legislate this Christian morality. This culture forms apart from laws. It subverts laws. It doesn't pay attention to governance. Christianity itself was an underground, subversive movement. And this kind of culture happens apart from those things. Just as you can't fight a naval war without ships or tank warfare without tanks, you can't fight a culture war without a culture. And we've got to, we're, if it hasn't already happened, we're in serious danger of not having a culture anymore. Expecting our faith to affect the larger society when it has not yet changed the average shelf at the local Christian bookstore is expecting something that is not going to happen. If we can't change our own culture, if we can't forge and cultivate a Christian culture based on a thoroughgoing biblical worldview to the extent that some of the crap that's in the Christian bookstore gets replaced with good art, then forget about changing the culture at large. Just forget about it. Let's just become sectarian. That's a lot more comfortable. We can just have cups of tea together and agree on things and watch the world go to hell. Or we can change the Christian bookstores into regular bookstores, which is how they're looking more and more anyway. Just self-help. Oprah will dig everything in the shop. Or we can create our own biblical 
culture. It's going to take you to do it. This cultural war is going to take people like you. I'm a bit of a history buff, and I have been reading a lot recently about World War I. And you know the difference between me if I was growing up in 1910 to me growing up today is that in 1910, I probably would have been trying to find a way to get into the army so that I could fight for my country. And today, I've kind of just subcontracted that out to someone at a computer, right? Just bomb them with, you know, press enter, and I'm sure we'll deal with them, right? That's the difference. And I feel like the Christian culture is the same. When it comes to this culture war, we used to have people who wanted to stand up and be soldiers, footmen in this cultural war. People who were willing to turn their hand to our artistic endeavor or scientific endeavor or political endeavor or whatever it is to help shape a culture that made a difference in the world. And I feel like Christians today, we've kind of just, well, someone else would do that. We've got our favorite three authors. We'll just retweet their tweets, right? It's a laptop war. But that's not how culture is created or cultivated. It's going to require the masses. So this is a rally cry, I guess, to our church to actually, you know, do the mission that we have been called to, to make all of life all about Jesus. You mean all of my interactions with the culture around me? Yes, all of those I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray for this church, for the Christians in our local area, for the churches, for the culture makers, for the culture subverters. I'm going to ask that you pray for us that we would have a spirit-filled boldness. Not to hate the culture around us. Not to just be generally be annoying jerks to the culture around us. Not to withdraw from the culture around us, but to swim against the stream together. Do you know what makes it easier to swim against the stream? Is when you've got a whole congregation doing it. And so I'm going to get you to pray. Pray in groups, pray as individuals, pray as families. But I want you to pray according to the prayer that these Christians prayed as they responded to the cultural opposition that they were facing in Acts chapter 4. All right, so in Acts 4, 23 to 31, the congregation gets together. Peter and John come back to them, tell them what had happened. They pray, and here's the interesting thing. This jumped out at me this past week. They pray not for conservation, but for courage. They pray not for preservation, but for perseverance. They pray not for wellness, but for witness. They don't pray that God would save them from the big bad world out there and from these nasty religious leaders who are going to try and take them down. They pray that they would have courage. God, save us from being syncretistic and save us from being sectarian. Make us swim against the stream, come hell or high water. That's what they pray. You can read the prayer for yourself. I won't read it now, but you heard Jimmy 
read it earlier, or you might like to use it as you pray together, but I want you to take five to do it now, and then if you are the kind of person who likes to have scripture in front of you as you pray throughout the week, and we encourage everyone to be that kind of person, then why not stick this prayer in your Bible? Why not stick this prayer on your fridge or on your dashboard and pray that our church would be this kind of church, ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. You pray for five, and then I'll pray to close. Let's stand and and pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would fill the people of this church, those present and not present, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that even as ordinary people we can be empowered to witness to the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would give us great power as culture makers in our time. Lord, that you would enable us and empower us to turn our hand to things that will further the cause of the gospel and build your kingdom. We pray for those in our culture who are culture makers, politicians and celebrities and journalists and all those people who help shape the conversation and shape the culture. We pray that they would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. We pray for the churches around us. We pray for the United Pentecostal Church and for St. Catherine of Siena Catholic Church and for In Church Melbourne and for the Wesleyan Methodist Church and for Living Springs Baptist Church and for Sydenham Baptist Church and for Potter's House and for all of the churches that are around this area. We pray that you would make them bold witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus. We pray that you would be calling Christians everywhere away from sectarianism, away from syncretism. Help us to stand together as your witnesses in this age. For those of us who are timid, please remind us that you haven't given us a spirit of timidity. You've given us a spirit of boldness courage, creativity. Please help us to be people, helping people make all of life all about Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.